Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim. I am your host, and I'm really excited today to uh, have a very special presentation for you. Uh, we have been working in the background here at the Impact Nations offices in our studios, uh, building a brand new podcast for you guys. And I'm really excited about it. I think it's really going to uh, bless you as well. Uh, so we wanted to share that with you today. The new podcast is called The Restoration Conversation, and it is hosted by two of my heroes. Uh, it is hosted by Christina Stewart. She is the uh, Director of Women's Development here at Impact Nations. Uh, I call her mom. You can call her Christina. Uh, and uh, her co-host is the very famous Annabelle. Uh, you hear me talk about Annabelle all the time. Uh, she is one of Impact Nation's uh, most powerful partners working to rescue uh, very vulnerable teenage girls in Uganda uh, in a variety of ways. You're going to hear all about that over the course of this podcast. Um, but the restoration conversation is really just... Uh, Mom and Annabelle sitting down, having a coffee together, uh, one in Uganda, one right here at this chair, uh, and just sharing stories about God's faithfulness. Uh, it is uh, at times difficult to hear, I should warn you. Uh, today we're going to share uh, episode one. I think this one, um, you should just be warned, there is some really difficult content to hear. And yet, uh, it's so important to hear uh, the difficult circumstances that God is rescuing people from. So, uh I, I hope you enjoy this. Uh, the podcast is now available for you to subscribe. So if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or one of your favorite podcasting uh, apps, you can uh, just search for The Restoration Conversation and you will find it there. Uh, or you can head to impactnations.com slash podcasts uh, and there is a button right there uh, that will direct you to this uh, this new podcast because now we have two to choose from in that menu. Uh, you can listen uh, on our website or subscribe uh, through one of those apps there as well. Yeah, uh, so uh, in just a moment, I'm going to share that with you. But I wanted to just remind you about one other thing. If you happen to be listening to this today, I'm recording this on June 30th. Uh, and, uh, we're just wrapping up our survive to thrive campaign. If you're a regular listener of the impact nations podcast, you've heard us talk about this before. This is actually Annabelle's ministry. Uh, the remnant generation is the, our partners in Uganda rescuing pregnant teens from abandonment, abuse, uh, sometimes, uh, just awful, horrific stories. Uh, these young women, uh, find themselves pregnant and alone, don't know what to do. Uh, very often the culture around them is just, uh, looking down at them with shame. Uh, and so they turn to the remnant generation, uh, and impact nations for help. And with your help, we're able to uh, provide them with ongoing counseling. We're able to provide them with shelter in some cases, if they don't have a place to stay. Uh, and we're covering their medical costs for all of their pregnancy. So prenatal exams, all ultrasounds, vitamins. Uh, we're, we're covering the cost of their labor and delivery. Uh, and all of that is because of your generosity. The Impact Nations family has been giving to this for a number of years. We have seen hundreds and hundreds of babies born uh, as a result of your incredible faithful giving. Uh, our goal is to rescue 1,200 teenage girls this year in a variety of ways. Uh, you can learn more about that at our website, impactnations.com slash thrive, to learn about the Survive to Thrive program. Uh, hey, if you're listening today, we're just wrapping up uh, our final campaign or our final day of our campaign. Campaign, uh, looking to raise $80,000 uh, to rescue these 1,200 girls. Um, but chances are you're listening to this after the campaign and you're thinking, ah, I really want to help out. Uh, don't worry, it's not too late. This is a year-round effort uh, and all these contributions are going to go uh, to help these young women regardless of when you give. So um, I am full of faith that we're going to reach our $80,000 goal today, uh, but we're going to need more than that. So if this is something that touches your heart, if you're hearing this, if you're hearing some of the stories during uh, the podcast today and you just think, I, I want to give toward uh, this effort, uh, you can head to impactnations.com slash thrive to do that. Um, but for now, I'm going to leave you with uh, the first episode of uh, what will be many episodes, many conversations between Mum and Annabelle. Uh, so here we go with episode one of The Restoration Conversation. You're listening to Restoration Conversation. I'm Christina Stewart. And I'm Annabelle Nakavidisevachije. And we love sharing stories of rescue and restoration. 
Hi, friends. It's Christina Stewart, and I am here in our studio in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I'm talking with my dear friend Annabelle, who is in Kampala. Welcome, Annabelle. Thank you so much, Mom. Looking beautiful, and I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) It's great to have some time together. Annabelle and I talk on the phone pretty much every week, and it's hard for us to hear each other. So this is a real treat. (laughs) Get to see each other and hear each other. Um, This is a new uh, adventure that Annabelle and I are taking together. Uh, We're planning on a weekly podcast. We're going to talk about uh, issues and about our lives and about our ministries and um, just hoping to draw the family into our relationship and the things that we're doing. Um, I was telling Annabelle that um, now that we're not currently doing Journeys of Compassion, and because I had raised up some leaders to be able to take that on a couple of years ago, uh, I've really had the pause button pushed during COVID. But I'm heading out again uh, next month to come and see her, which is great. And I needed a new title um, at Impact Nation. So I prayed and the Lord gave me the title Director of Women's Development, and uh, I have no idea what that's going to mean, but that's what God said to me. So um, I'm excited about that, Um, and uh, Annabelle is going to play very largely in that because of all the work that she's doing with women in Uganda. I love, I love that title, mom. It's very prophetic. I think it speaks to what you are really made of and the anointing that flows in your life. I am excited about, I think, you know, I get a sense that this title comes with um, the reality that you just started. Yeah. I know you have been doing so much already, but it speaks into you know, the fact that you just started, it's going to be like you've never seen anything before. So I'm excited. I'm excited. That's great. Yeah. Um, I was also telling Annabelle that it was actually exactly two years ago today that I last left for (laughs) Africa. I went to Kenya and then I came on to Uganda. And um, the time in Uganda was really special. Do you remember, Annabelle, I did a uh, train the trainers for the um, inner healing seminar. And yeah, that was really well attended. And it was exciting to be Mm -hmm. able to pass that information on to different pastors and leaders and, uh, and of Mm -hmm. course, to your staff. So um, that's something we can talk more about. I felt like uh, God wanted me to bring my journal with me today, and I wasn't sure why. And then he, he, I just opened it to what I wrote yesterday. And Annabelle, you'll remember that um, on your first day back as a staff uh, in January, mm-hmm. I shared a um, message on open doors and that God was opening doors. Yes. Uh, and yes. I felt yesterday... The Lord showed me a scripture, and I don't even know if it's one of the ones that I shared with you, but it, it just hit me afresh yesterday because I was praying about today and um, that this was the start of something new and unfamiliar for us um, and that we have to find our way through it. But this was the scripture God gave me yesterday. It's from 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9. And it says, there's an amazing door of opportunity standing wide open for me to minister here. And of course, this was Paul, and he was talking about Ephesus, but I really felt like the Lord was speaking to you and I and saying that this is a tremendous door of opportunity. Um, And in Galatians 6.10, it says, Take advantage of every opportunity to be a blessing to others, especially to your brothers and sisters in the family of faith. And so I hope mm-hmm. that this podcast is going to be a blessing to others. And Amen. I think it's an opportunity for both you and I. I know that one of the things that I've been praying for, for you for years, is that your voice would be heard in Uganda. Um, yes. So I'm wondering, it's hard to know where to start. I think it was five years ago that you and I first met. I'm not sure. <laughs> um but I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your story. Um, last year, you rescued over a thousand young girls. How did that mm-hmm. happen? What's your story? How did you get started in that? And we'll just kind of go back and forth. <laughs> 
I love telling. I love telling uh, my story. I love sharing what God is doing because I really believe, Mom, like you have said, that this podcast is um, going to bless many, many people. And um, even before I start sharing my story, I, I have a sense that there are people out there that have had life experiences and have been through things, and they never perhaps see what. God is going to make out of that. What so good true. is going to come out of that? And I believe that this podcast is going to be one of those things that opens their eyes to see what the Lord is doing. And God is going to release ministries. Uh, God is going to minister healing and hope. And I believe that for people that are already serving and they're on the front line, they're going to be encouraged to keep going. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, to share that just, you know, um, from what you have shared in those powerful scriptures, that this is an opportunity uh, that is for us to minister encouragement. And I know that, you know, I, I have a, a big sense in my spirit that God is going to really, really use this podcast for that. So many years ago, <laughs> I want to remember how many years precisely, but um, when I was, I am, I'm going to make... 37 this year in December and um, several years ago when I was 13 life changed for me mm-hmm. I was born in a Muslim family and raised in a Muslim family uh, where you know we had mom and dad and it was a polygamous family but one of the realities of polygamy and Islam uh, by the, in the times when we were growing up is that you know girl child education was never really valued so many of my older sisters never really went far with school they couldn't study much because it was not a priority for girls to get mar- uh, to to go to school the priority was to prepare them for marriage so mm-hmm. the routine was grow up you know turn around 13 years old then find you know a, a man is found for you and then you're being prepared for marriage as long as you see your periods that means that you're ready for I marriage see. so that was the story of course were of you my living in a oldest. city or in a village when you were that age yeah it wasn't i i, I it was you know what we'd call like a semi-urban setting it wasn't really like deep in the village mm-hmm. um it was in bunamwaya which is in Wakiso district right now, which is a um, a village along Entebbe Road, but not really on the main road. Entebbe Road is what connects our international airport. So it wasn't really like what deep in the village, but right. it was um, just a semi-urban setting. And my big extended family, you know, occupied this huge, um, you know, chunk of land so my grandfather had bought a very very big chunk of land and then divided it amongst his children and um, they basically you know we had our aunties and uncles um, and you know cousins living in the same neighborhood so we would attend one wedding to another and all of them you know were teenage mothers that are girls that were young 13 year olds 14 year olds that were being forced to be married off. And for the boys, the family business was the, a meat business. So Muslims usually are known for being butchermen, uh, selling skins and hides for meat. Um, in Uganda, it is believed that if it's only the Mos- a Muslim person that is allowed to cut to slaughter chicken, you know, or to slaughter a cow, that is when it is holy. And then if it is not a Muslim person who has slaughtered this animal, then it's not considered clean, it's not considered holy. So most of my brothers were in that that business of slaughtering animals, being butcher men and working with our fathers. And because of that nature of lifestyle and the business, it, it, it brought in a lot of... Um, Travel. So my dad was traveling to different places looking for cows. And that's where he you know, got engaged with other women, had other children. Um, I have not met some of my siblings. Um, and, I, you know, we are still we've been talking about a family reunion for years. And prayerfully, maybe this year, God will grant us that miracle uh, so that we get to know who the rest of our siblings are. But we, um, there are many siblings that we have not yet met. 
Uh, so it's from that background that um, of polygamy and uh, and just that came with a lot of fights. No woman wants to share a husband. This morning at staff devotions, we're reading the story of Jacob and his two wives, Leah and um, Rachel. And these were sisters and they were fighting, you know, like there was these constant arguments because these two sisters had one husband and then they ended up even giving their maids. And there was just so much confusion within the family setting, which really speaks into the reality that wherever there is more than one mother, one father, you know, one woman, one man, wherever there is more than one, there is always going to be confusion and mm-hmm. fights and jealous and, you know, bitter hearts. So that was what was in my family as well. And it is because of that, that my mom ended up separating with my father and I was left in charge of my siblings um, with, you know, from that time when I was 12 years old and when my mom ran away, there was, you know, it was a bitter fight. She almost lost her life. And I remember the night that she ran away, she literally, you know, looked back and told me, Aisha, Aisha was my Muslim name and told me, Aisha, take care of your siblings. Mm -hmm. So my mom ran through the back door. I thought she was going to come back the following day, but unfortunately she didn't come back. So So you were 12 years old and you were put in charge of how many siblings, how many younger siblings did you have? Four. Okay including myself making it five right okay wow. yeah that must have been so, a pretty traumatic it's mm-hmm, one thing for traumatic. mom to leave and say watch the kids for a few hours it's another thing for you to think that's what's happening and then she just doesn't come back i can't imagine yeah yes mom and you've been to africa and you've been to uganda to different places and you've made some of these children that are you know heading homes we have a lot of child-headed homes it is a struggle for them to feed it's a struggle for them to feel secure one of the things that happened during that time when my mom was away is just the sense of being so insecure and always afraid and fearful of what's going to happen not knowing you know what's next with life I had young siblings I had to figure out um, how to put them on my back I had to figure out how to you know fetch water and carry my young sister um, Saida by then now she's Ruth because she received Christ and changed her name but then she was very young she was about three years old and I had to put her on my back and then put a jerry can of water on my on my head and had to walk a distance to go back home to make sure that I'm cooking food, to make sure that um, you know they are clean, I'm washing their clothes as their big sister. And it's very, at that time, all my childhood dreams that I had, I felt were being shattered. There was no hope. I had no idea how we were going to come through. Um, I, ha- I was very sure that my school life had ended. Mm. I was very sure that um, I didn't have a chance at becoming Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> did I, mom, did I ever tell you that I wanted to be op- like yes, Oprah Winfrey when I, I was a kid? Because I read your book, so I know that story. Oh, and I definitely, at some oh, point, yeah. I want to come back to your dreams because I, I find it very interesting that a 12-year-old girl in Uganda in a situation like that where nothing is encouraged, where school isn't promised, that you had dreams. So put a pin there. We'll come back to that one. Carry on with your story. Were yeah. there any adults helping you? Did the you said that you lived in the amongst in amongst many family members? Did they realize what was happening? Was any anyone offering you any help to get food? I can't even imagine. How did you get food? Well. Um... Let me first start with the point of, did we have any relatives helping? Now, when you are in a polygamous family, every wife has their favorite relatives, right? So my mom had a few of my aunties that were siding with her. And then the other mothers also had people that they sided with. So it was like different camps against each other. Mm -hmm. And so when my mother left, 
um, no one really wanted to get to take extra baggage because everyone kind of had their own sure. lot. Yeah. Um, so they, they were have, dealing with big families. They were also dealing with polygamous fights. There was a lot of witchcraft in the family. Um, my mother had really, really worked hard to make sure that we go to school and that didn't go well with some of our relatives mm-hmm. who felt jealous uh, that, you know, were going to school. So there was all just, just in the midst of all that family confusion, really. And um, we had one auntie, there was one biological auntie uh, that I knew was friends with my mom. At least she she liked my mother from what I used to see. So when um, times were difficult, that's where we would go and get some food, get you know some sauce. Uh, but we had learned how to grow food and work with our hands when we were really, really young. So my mother was not the kind of person who raised us lazy. Mm. <laughs> like she made sure that, you know, she went with us to the garden. She went with us to the, you know, fetching water. We knew how to wash clothes when we were young. So I, I would go to the garden and pick the food. We had a family garden, which was really communal. So every, this piece of land, every family had like a corner where they would I grow see. corn, beans, uh, sweet potatoes, and, and that is where we could go to harvest because by the time she left, we had some food that was still in the garden and I could go and, and just pick it up, come back home, fetch firewood. We are used to that routine of fetching firewood and I would just fetch the firewood and then cook. And then water was always fetched from the well. So one time, my one of my younger sisters fell really, really ill and uh, she had measles. You know, she just got these sores on her skin. I didn't know what it was. It was very scary. It was very itchy. She would cry all the time. She had red eyes. She started throwing up. She had a very high temperature. And I was scared that I was going to lose her. Uh, During that time, my my dad would come home. I can't even imagine a 12-year-old dealing with that and having no clue what to do. Like that just, the trauma is shocking. (laughs) Yeah, like, and at that time, my dad would spend a couple of days without coming home. And whenever he came, he would not sleep around. So would come like maybe during day uh, for a couple of hours just to check on us, maybe to bring sugar and soap and just to see how we are doing, check on the cows. Um, I forgot to mention we had cows at home. So even when mom left now, the responsibility to make sure that they are inside the kraal was my responsibility. So there was a herdsman who would take them to the field to feed during day. And then they would come back in the evening and he would milk the cows. But then I had to make sure that they are securely uh, kept, you know, kept in the in the kraal. Like, you know, like I would have to make sure that the, the wooden gate is, is, is there and the milk that has been uh, milked out of the cows is sold uh, to the neighborhood. So that is sometimes how we managed to survive uh, to get some of the things that we needed. It was from the sale of the milk that was coming out of the cows. So I would really, really go to sleep very, very tired. So when my sister fell sick, the one that follows me immediately, I, I uh, that time we, we didn't have border borders. We didn't have, um, we had cars, but you had to hire a special car, a, a special taxi. I think that's, we call them taxis in the US. So here we call them special hire. And then uh, I didn't have money for special hire. There were no border borders. They weren't that common. So I had to carry her on my back and I had to walk um, a distance that I think is equivalent to about uh, 15 kilometers from home to where my father used to work. And I would sit in the shed and then keep walking. We didn't have mobile phones. So it was not possible for me to give him a call and tell him that my sister is not doing well. So I had just had to walk from home uh, with my sister on the back and I'll just take a rest under a shed wherever I could find a shed. And then when I feel like my energy is back up, then I would just carry her again and walk. So I go to my father's butcher and uh, told him, you know, that Shamim is not feeling well. My sister who follows me is called Shamim. And I told her, 
Shamim uh, is not feeling well. She's been running this fever. I try to manage the fever with a with um, a wet towel, you know, to 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 calm her temperature down. It was not working. Uh, I had tried some herbs that I would see mom give us when we are not well. Like you know, my mother uh, was was supposed to be, I think, a doctor because she knows all these sorts of local herbs that you you use when you're in a, a crisis moment. But none of those that I could remember was working and her eyes were red, her skin was itchy. And I decided that, you know, we need to get to hospital. So when I, I met dad, he, he, he took us to hospital. She was given treatment. She was put on a drip uh, during the day. And then I, I, she, the, the advice that we take her back tomorrow for another drip. So, and that night we had to come back home. So dad put us on his bicycle and rode us back home. So the following day, he sent one of our stepbrothers to come and help out. Um, so this, my stepbrother was, was not like a stranger. He's a person that I, you know, we had been with uh, for a couple of months, especially during holidays, during school holidays. His mother would send him over uh, to come and, and stay with dad, especially that was the only way he would get school fees. So if he comes home for holiday, then my dad was compelled to pay his school fees the following term. So it was that strategy that most of my yeah, step siblings were using. And, you know, if you want dad to give you school fees, you have to go there during holidays. So it, you know, we knew him, and and um, he was older than me. I think by that time he was around nineteen years. He was really masculine. He was tall. Uh, he, his voice had already, you know, become very deep and strong. So when he came home, I felt relieved. I felt a sigh. You know, I felt there was an adult now in the house who is going to help with the house. Yeah. Yeah, who is going to help with taking my sister to hospital? And I felt so relieved. And but my my joy was really short lived because the very person that I thought had come to protect us and lighten my load and uh, be a defender where my mom and dad weren't is the very person that instead abused me. Yeah. So one night we, we had two bedrooms, um, the parents bedroom and the children's bedroom. So because my parents were not home, their bedroom was always closed. And then our bedroom for the kids, we didn't have a, a bed. We only had two mattresses that we used to share. And um, there was no door on the, bed, on, on, on the bedroom. So it, it was just separated by a small cloth uh, of curtain. And so that night while I was sleeping, um, you know, I think it was also because I was so exhausted and very tired for a long time that now I felt when he was at home, I would just sleep off and, yes. you know, snore away and just have a rested heart. And it is in that moment when uh, he took advantage. I, I don't know what got, to, got into his head. I don't know what happened to his mind. We have never had that discussion until now, but um, my, 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 my stepbrother sexually abused me. And that night, many things changed. Yes. I lost my virginity. I lost what I felt was the most precious gift any girl can have. Mm -hmm. um, I had already lost my childhood. I, I feel, um, I think I've had this conversation with you, mom, that I feel like I, I had a retake. <laughs> I have a retake on social life. I don't know how to be a child. I, did, I don't know what it means to just be an adolescent. I had to grow up very fast. I, I sometimes struggle to understand when people say, you know, when, when you're in, you know, when girls are in adolescent stage or boys are in adolescent, like I struggle to really understand. You know, I have had to had learn experience. from yeah, from experiences of other people, watching them, watching my, my younger siblings grow. And then I kind of feel like, yeah, I think, yeah, that's adolescence. That's why they are stubborn. That's why they are this. I didn't have the opportunity to be stubborn. I didn't have the opportunity to be a crazy kid. You know, mm. I had to mature quickly. Sure. And so when, even though that had been taken away, I still had this confidence in me that I would grow up and, you know, be successful and, and be all these different things. But it was very valuable in, in, in my culture and it still is 
uh, even then, before I get, I didn't know Christ, I was a Muslim. It was very valuable um, to to be a virgin. It determined how much bride price would be paid over you. You know, like when you're getting married, right. um, it determined the reputation you had in society. It determined. Uh, how people treated you and talk about you. Right. There are so many names they give to girls that have lost uh, their virginity before before marriage. Interesting. You know, they are called second hand. They are called used gadgets. Uh, they are called wasted material. Uh, they are called all sorts of names. So, so you knew that about I your was. culture. You knew that everyone's yes. view of you would change. Did anyone know that exactly. this had happened to you or was it just an internal thing? Like now I don't have worth because this has happened. It, that, that just came automatically because that night um, I held my small dress as I sat in that corner shivering and I was seeing blood all over my dress. And I knew that um, because I had finished my primary seven, I had studied about uh, the reproductive health system. I knew that when you lose your, your virginity, sometimes you bleed um, because of the breaking of the hymen. I knew that what it meant. And I felt so dirty. I felt yeah. so um, like, I don't know, like there is a thing that left my life that day. Yeah. Um, and if it wasn't for the grace of God, I know that it's taken me years for me to be able to get to a place where I appreciate that I am complete. I am Amen. worthy. I am, um, you know, loved and I am not inferior. But there is a thing that is taken away when your innocence is taken away forcefully yes. and in such a brutal way and and by the person who is a relative. Yes. Because then that is incest. Yeah. And incest is my culture is a curse. Then it is not even just about you losing virginity. It is now you have become a caste girl. You know, like you are. Um, it's yeah. it's so interesting you know, to me that that is that there's that whole view, which it's not your fault, and. And yeah. incest and rape is still a huge issue in your culture, and it's something you and I talk about and and are working on. Mm -hmm. um, but there's another part of this story that I remember that you felt guilty. You felt, mm -hmm. I, I forgot to put my pajama pants on. I remember that about your story. Yes. And somehow you felt yeah. like this was your fault. And that is so mm -hmm. common with this kind of abuse that the innocent one feels somehow responsible. Somehow they did something mm -hmm. to invite it. And it also seems to me that from what you've told me about your culture and the work that you're doing is often the family sees it that way too. It's the girl who who is despised, not the one who perpetrated the abuse. And did you tell anyone what had happened to you? I ran to my auntie, uh, the one, the auntie that I told you that I knew was friends with my mom. Right. So I ran there casting in the morning and I told her what has happened. And she seemed to believe me, but then she told me not to tell anyone. Mm. Um, she said she'll be the one that will tell my dad. So again, the reality of, just being silent yes. and covering up and not talking about it because it is shameful. I was going to say, it's the shame. reinforced yeah. what I was feeling. Yes. Yeah. I was already feeling very guilty, very dirty. And now talking to my aunt and she was like, don't tell anyone was just confirmation that th this is like the worst thing that can right. ever happen to you. And if anyone gets to know about it, they are going to see you differently so in a sense i think she was protecting me mm -hmm. um but i also felt like she really didn't understand what i was going through right. i didn't feel helped i didn't feel um there was enough like she didn't take me to hospital nothing she just took me to the bathroom uh, made sure that i had a shower and then you know allowed let me sit in the uh, her sitting in the chairs in her sitting room she you know gave me food gave me a hot cup of tea and I kept on telling her I need to go and pick the rest of my younger siblings because then I had three sisters and one brother 
and I was afraid of what would happen to my other sisters. My stepbrother had warned me that if I ever talk about it, if I if I run away and re, you know report him to anyone, he's going to kill me. So I I didn't want you know I didn't want anything bad to happen to my younger siblings. And so we, we I, I the following morning. After talking to my auntie, I convinced her to go and pick the rest of my younger siblings, which she did. And uh, then later that day in the evening, my dad comes home and I was waiting for him to say something or do something Mm -hmm. or, you know, call for a meeting, ask me what happened. And he said nothing. Um, So we spent that night at my auntie's place. Did your auntie you know, tell I saw him? them talking with my auntie. Mm. So she I did don't tell know. Like, Oh, you don't know. My dad never talked to me about anything. Right. You know, I saw until now, like I, I know right now, now that we, I'm older, that I started sharing my story publicly. So he's had it, he's seen it. We've had um, a few conversations that weren't really, um, I didn't like the conversations of forgiveness and, and healing and trying to foster reconciliation. But I, I I never really understand why he didn't do anything. Maybe it was too much for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't know how to respond. He didn't know how to react. I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like, you know, I don't know what was running on in, in his head. You know, but it's, what he did it's to interesting to because I think most yeah. fathers, I don't know about it in a polygamous situation, but I think most fathers, part of, what they feel as a father is to protect, especially daughters. And um, when he finds out that he he wasn't there and he didn't protect, I don't know. I'm just thinking maybe that was part of, he was ashamed. He was feeling guilty. He didn't know what to do with what was yeah. going on inside of him. I don't know. But um, it, how did you carry on? Did you stay at your auntie's house? We were taken to one of our stepmother's homes. So together with my, my uh, all of us with my siblings, dad took us to stay with one of our stepmothers. And so now uh, you she was not excited to have us. And now you have a woman who, yeah. these are not her children. It's not her responsibility. Yes. And, oh, man. Yes. And she didn't have her own biological children, oh. so which was a big frustration already. Sure. Uh, that she can't have her own children. And now here she is having to take care of all these kids, five kids that just show up, you know, and um, from a woman that she didn't really like (laughs) because she really didn't like my mom. So what that meant is that I had to really work hard Mm -hmm. to earn a place for us to stay. I had to do all the home chores. I had to do all the cooking. I had to do all, you know, the her businesses. She used to make pancakes. Um, And these are not the American pancakes. So Mm -hmm. we have a different version of pancakes made out of bananas and um, a cassava fly in Uganda. So you should make pancakes and I'll make sure I wake up in the morning, have those ready for the, for the shops. And then in the evening, after all that day's chores, then I would go around hawking clothes that you would get from the secondhand clothes that usually come from um, outside countries uh, that I imported in Uganda. And then you can buy like a bale um, and then you get whether it is shirts or skirts or dresses and then just walk around the community selling those. Right. So that's what I would I used to do. And that is how we were able to earn a place for us to sleep. And that's how we we're able to earn a food for us to eat. I, I remember one of the most painful things was having to wash my siblings and uh, our clothes uh, for, for myself and my siblings after washing clothes for the adults and then the water the soapy water that remains is what would use to wash our clothes because we weren't allowed to use the soap right you know so um yeah that meant that all our white white you know dresses or any white t-shirt was turned brown, Brown. (laughs) turned a funny color because the water was not clean and yet it is what had the soap. So, yeah. And so long story short, um, I get to hear that there are plans to marry me off to a man who was older. He was a Muslim man. 
uh, we used to go and study Islam. And this was the, one of the teachers that was teaching us Islam. And he would frequent home, like he would come with bread, sometimes with, with sugar, other times with rice. And, they, you know, he was really having a good connection with my stepmother. And little did I know that those, you know, little gifts that he was bringing home mm -hmm. were part of his um, strategy to just talk my, my stepmother into marrying me and was asking him, like, like he was asking my stepmother to speak to my dad and my aunties about arranging a, a marriage for me. Oh. And of course, my somehow information I had, had gotten to my grandmother, uh, my stepmother about what had happened. And, um, you know, they felt like, well, no, no one should know. And it was a good time for me to be given away before, you know, men find out that I'm not a virgin and stuff right. like that. So they call one of my aunties. And so they start talking to me about how I should behave, um, I, you know, getting ready for marriage. Like it wasn't directly informing me that you're going to get married, but the conversation started with statements like, you know, make sure that you're, 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 you're bathing well because married women bathe well. Make sure you're cooking food right because I don't want you to be a shameful, you know, when, when you get into your own marriage and you cannot cook properly. So like there was always that conclusion to all the instructions that I was receiving at home. And so my birthday is on the 23rd of December. And that year I was going to turn 13 years. Right. And so my wedding had been planned for the 26th of December. Wow. And I got to learn about it because I went to a lady, a tailor who was supposed to make my, um, my dress, my wedding, you know, hijab, which is a Muslim attire, an Islam mm -hmm. uh, Muslim attire that I was supposed to wear. And then this lady in passing just makes a comment and, and says, you know, this girl is too young. She's too young. That man is, you know, is old. He already has a wife. I wonder why he wants to take a young girl for a second wife. And ah, so for me, that was like the, the trigger. I was like, I am actually going to be married off. I had, had I had seen people sitting in small meetings at home and kind of, you know, I felt like there's an organization going on of, of something mm -hmm. and I wasn't really sure if it was me or, and then this lady now releases the secret and she's the one who tells me that there's something being planned I am, and I am the bride. So guess what? I didn't return home. I just ran away. I ran away from home and um, ran away to go and look for my mom. I knew one of her friends that used to stay in a place called Zana. I, I reached out to her and told her I'm looking for my mother. I think they want to marry me off. And she suggested that I, you know, she informs my dad that I'm there with her. And I knew that was not good news. I didn't want anyone to inform my dad. So uh, when, when she went around and said, okay, it's okay, you can be here. Uh, I'm going to you know, let your father know that you're here with me. And then maybe when he comes back from work, he will come here and we talk about it. So I didn't want to have a conversation with my dad. I just decided to run away again. So I went, I pretended like I'm going to the bathroom. I never came back. I just ran away and um, I'm trying I to picture. I, I mean, I, I've been to Uganda and I know how the communities are. And the one of the things that I always think about when, when I think about Africa, especially Uganda, is people on the road. People are walking, walking, walking. So I can I feel like I can yeah. picture you going down the road, just like I could picture you carrying your sick sister. Now I picture you, you're 12 years old, you're going down the road, you don't know where your mother is, you're afraid of your father, you're afraid of what this plan is, and and I, I don't even know how you figure out where to go. Uh, you know, these villages and towns are spread apart, uh, there's no road signs, there's no... Uh, you. You've already figured out you, who you cannot trust. You know, you, he had put trust in your, your stepbrother and, and he raped you. you. You had put trust in an auntie and now she's going to marry you off. You had put trust in your father, but he didn't say anything. And, and, you're, and, you, and yet I, I can even imagine you 
as you're going down the road, you realize you've left the siblings behind. You've left the sisters yes. behind. And so just that conflict within, I have, I have grandchildren that are that age. And I, I just can't even imagine what that is like. Uh, when I think of my granddaughters, I, so now where did you go? You've gone to the friend and she's going to go get your dad. And now you're heading down the road again. Where did you go next? To the old tax park. I was looking for one of my cousin brothers that uh, my mother used to mention a lot. He was a tax driver. Okay. And every time my, my mom had um, events in the village where she was born, they used to mention, oh, we shall use Saidi's car. Oh. So I went to the old, I knew that he used to work in the old tax park. And so I, all I needed was to get to the old tax park, find Saidi. And if I found him, then I, I thought, I believed he would lead me where my mom is because I, I expected that my mother had ran to the village, to her parents' home. Right. So I was expecting that he would take me there. And when I reached the old tax park, it took me about, I don't know, close to almost you know, six hours of walking something um, from home to that old tax park. And then when I got there, it, I was so tired, I was so hungry, I was so dirty. Um, I asked, you know, that the, the old tax park is huge. Like there's just a lot of chaos with so many cars mm. and, I, and so many people with the same name. <laughs> and I only had one name. Wow. <laughs> So I wasn't successful finding Saidif on day one. And then on day two, I kept on describing the kind of person I'm looking for. And so they, they used to tell me, so what stage that he, does he use? And I was like, I think he goes to Busia Malaba. I, I used to hear people talking about him coming back from Malaba. So they directed me to where the tax stage for Malaba was. And when I went there, they told me, ah, he won't be back in Kampala for like a week, you know. You have to wait. I oh think he, he would go. Malaba is on the border uh, of, of Kenya and Uganda. So there was no way he would be back like immediately. So it would take time when he goes. He takes a couple of days before he comes back to town. So I had to, I had nowhere to stay. I had nowhere to sleep. I had nowhere to go. And that's how I ended up on the street. So and, um, this part of your story, I haven't actually yeah. heard before. And so it's answering the question for me, Annabelle, how did you get such a heart for girls on the street? I, I mean, I've heard a lot of your story, but not this part. And so it's the penny is dropping, as we say, I'm now understanding, you know, exactly what it feels like to be in that situation. That's amazing. Okay, carry on. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, mom, it's a different thing when you are at home in an abusive family, but you are assured of a, a, a bed, you know, you know, you're going to enter a house and somebody's going to close that door and there is a bed, there is food to eat. Yeah. And it's a completely different story when you are out in the cold, yeah. in the middle of nowhere and some of our listeners wouldn't anyone. realize that it literally does it can yeah. get cold at night in uganda i know it's Africa, yeah it does really, really because you're so close to the equator it, does, it can get quite cold yeah. yeah it gets really cold at night yeah. i only had one dress uh that i was wearing right. i didn't carry a sweater right. i had my you know small umo just slippers uh, on my feet, I didn't have shoes because I had I didn't I didn't have time to wear shoes. I was running, you know. Um, so you so were barefoot. Those, I was uh, the slippers, uh, uh, sandals. Okay. Uh, the, uh, what I was wearing, so um, and I was so dirty. I had not taken a shower. Um, I had not had lunch. I was not sure I was going to have dinner and I was not seeing Saidi. There was no mommy. There was no Saidi. There was no dad. There was no phone for me to make a phone call. And I, there is no way I was going to go back home. Right. So right there, stranded in the, in the, in the, in the uh, Kampala town, Kampala city, I found a corner. So there is this particular spot near the tax park where there is a toilet that was constructed by uh, the KCC, the city authority. It's a public toilet. And that, the, at, at that place, 
there was a, a gentleman who was like the askari in Uganda. We we use armed guards at night. Mm-hmm. Many people use armed guards. So there was um, a space where women would cook food, like you know the the the, the food vendors. That's where they used to cook right. their food from. Uh, they used to have um, you know their their charcoal stoves there, and they, you would leave their things overnight. So this man was providing security for those things. And so that is where I, you know, I, I I was led to go. Like I just, my mind led me there. Um, I found these women that were cleaning their saucepans and I asked them for something to eat. And I said, you know what? I know how to wash dishes. I know how to wash saucepans. If you can give me anything that is remaining for me to eat, I'll be able to wash uh, suspense for you and stuff. So, so they started asking me, so who are you? Where have you come from? And I told them, no, I, you know, I didn't want to narrate my whole story. I, I wasn't sure if anybody knew who I was. I wasn't really trusting people with all my details. So I just told them, you know, uh-uh, um, I got stranded in the taxi park, but my brother is coming tomorrow morning mm. to take me back home. Mm. So um, right now I just have to figure out where to stay. And so this lady was kind. She gave me food. And then this, this security guy allowed me to put the empty boxes, empty bo- you know, box papers right where he was sitting. And that's where I slept for that night. Wow. And I slept there for day one, for day two, and for day three um, until this lady that I was helping with washing the dishes and, and the cups decided that, you know what? You, you're a hardworking girl. Maybe I'll help you find your brother, but I can take you home to help me also with home chores. So that's how I got my first job as a maid, as a housemaid. So she takes me to her house, long story short. I stay there for one week because her husband tried to abuse me and I ran away again. Oh my goodness. Um, and, and at that point, I was feeling like, I think every man that is looking at me sees something that I'm not seeing. Maybe the curse is already following me right. uh, because now, I, I mean, there is this man that I met at a place where I felt, oh, now I have a job. Yeah. Um, and this lady promised that she will help me find Saidi. Right. But the husband wants to abuse me. Right. So I still ran away. She was not living very far from the tax park. I ran away, came back to the tax park. And this time, God was gracious. I was able to find Saidi. And uh, he had no idea where mom was. He had no idea. Like they had never communicated in a long time. So I, he took me to stay with one of my cousins uh, that I had never met. And because his home was small, he had a young family and he felt like there was no space for me. So he said, but I'm going to take you to one of my sisters who was my cousin. And um, I I went there and uh, she was welcoming. She said, yeah, you know, we connected um, and she was getting me, you know, jobs for me to do. I started washing clothes for money. I started fetching water for money. I started babysitting for people. And that became my life for three years, mom. And and, um, I got reunited with my mother and my other siblings after three years of working all sorts of jobs, working in different houses, um, trying to as much as possible survive and um, just questioning why no one is looking for me, why my dad is not coming to Mm -hmm. find me, why my mother is not coming to find me. I kept on waking up every morning, hoping somebody would be at that door asking about me and there wasn't. And that took three years. Wow. Yeah. Let's pause right there. Cause I want to, I want to go back to the question that I had earlier, because you said just now, you said, I hoped that someone would come to the door. And earlier you said that you had some dreams of what you wanted to do or be or, and so I'm, I'm picturing this girl who's been raped, who's, been abused, who's run away, who can't trust anyone, who, but then you just use the word hope. How did you still have hope in this situation? What, what were the dreams that you had that somehow stayed inside of you that you didn't give up on in the midst of all of this? Um, 
so as a child, I had watched Oprah Winfrey shows, <laughs> the repeat ones, of course, they weren't, they weren't usually live. Right. And I admired how she always had these people on the stage and um, reconciling families and bringing, you know, children to see their parents after such a long time. And I would cry all the time. I felt like her shows were a representation of my family situation. There was so much brokenness, so much division. But it was also not just for me, but it was a story that was very common for many other children right. in the community where we grew up in, at school where we used to go. It was always the story you know, of, of kids that were coming, just carrying so much brokenness. And it's like, you know, one day I'm going to go to, you know, and, and, and study uh, journalism. I thought you needed to be a journalist to have such a show. So I wanted to start to study journalism and have work on television, but I wanted to have a show like that, that brings healing and reconciliation and just, you know, make people happy and cry at the same time. So that was just my childhood ambition. So when they would ask people, what do you want to be when you grow up? Other people would be like, I want to be a pilot. I want to be an engineer. I want to be a doctor. People were saying they wanted to be lawyers. And my my dream was always consistent. I wanted to be like Oprah Winfrey. So (laughs) hold on just a sec, because I want to point something out to people. So these are kids who, you know, you happen to have seen a TV, but I'm because I've experienced this with with even like the poorest, most abandoned orphan child that I meet in all these different countries, they have these dreams. Somehow they know about, they've seen the plane go and they've heard the word pilot and they're like, one day I'm going to fly a plane, you know, or they've heard about mm-hmm. lawyers or doctors or, I'm always fascinated that I think these are God dreams, like God puts things inside of children uh, hopes and dreams. And it doesn't matter how poor they are, how abused they are, how uh, threatened they are, how cursed they are by the people around them. So, there's something that God puts inside of people. And I think for many of us, we know what that dream was, even as a child. So that fascinates me that somehow you seeing Oprah on a television it wasn't just about being on a stage. It was the helping people part, too, that you saw that and you you were like, I want to do that. Uh, that fascinates mm-hmm. me. Yeah. yeah. But you had not and, been and to like school, you, you, right? Like you'd finished P7, which is, which is like the end of primary school, but you had not gone on to me, secondary school. Right? Is that correct? I had not gone to secondary right. school. No, I hadn't. No, I hadn't. And when all that, the... the um, the brokenness and running away and abuse happened. Now my reason to keep fighting, to keep, to keep hoping, um, you know, drifted from being Oprah Winfrey mm-hmm. now to being, making sure that I had to win for my siblings. Mm-hmm. I had to win. It was no longer about me. Um, my, my young siblings gave me reason to fight mom. Mm-hmm. They gave me reason to work hard I I wanted to go back and get them and get them into school. I never imagined I had the opportunity to continue in school, but I wanted, I never wanted my younger, because I had three younger sisters and I knew what their fate is going to be if they were not in school. So I said, well, married at 12 or 13. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. So I, I determined that I'm going to work hard to keep them in school. So that is why I was working all these jobs. Mm-hmm. I, I never, you know, wanted to sit by and do nothing. But also the other thing I felt like people love you when you're successful. Everyone wants a successful person. Everyone associates with, you know, with, with people when they're doing well, when they have something of value they can give. And I felt like for me, all the love that I hadn't received, all the affirmation that I was yearning for was going to come if I was successful. Interesting. Because then everyone wants to associate with, would want to associate with me. So, and my definition of success was that I was going to make a lot of money, build a house with stairs, (laughs) buy a car, wear red lipstick (laughs) and my high heels I think I've shared this with you before and walk down the stairs and feel like I am 
I have made it. I have and made it. Yeah. then the world will look at me and, you know, understand that, yeah, I didn't die. I made it through. Yeah. I wanted to go back and, you know, prove a point to my sibling, to my older right. siblings, to my family, and just show them that, you know what, I, I could become something. So there was a lot of um, anger that inspired my zeal, my actions, my, um, you know, like ambition. It right. was really not holy anger. And and mom, this is a thing that is very common for people that have gone through so much pain. There is this, there is a need to prove yourself, to right. prove that you're worth, to earn your place in, in society. And I thank God for Jesus because now I know that you don't have to do that you know, to be acceptable. You don't have to prove anything. Jesus will just accept you and give you a new identity and you are complete. But by then I didn't have Jesus and I didn't know that truth. Right. So I felt I had to earn my place. Right. I had to please my cousin. I had. To, I felt like I, had, I needed to take care of myself. It's taken me years, mom, to learn how to receive <laughs> because I felt like I had to work hard to get everything that I have, right. uh, you know, I, I struggled to receive this. I know I never accepted gifts. I never accepted money. If, if I didn't earn it, I, I never accepted compliments. If somebody tells me you're beautiful or you're smart, I thought instead of being happy, like I would, you know, feel insulted. There were always all these things. And I was yearning for affirmation. I was yearning for acceptance. I was yearning for belonging, you know. Sure. And this is so true for many people that have been through a lot of brokenness. Yeah. And sometimes you do it without even realizing you're doing of it. Course. You are trying to please people. You know, I was such a people pleaser. I would wash clothes, mom, and never get paid. Some customers never paid me, but I would go back the following day because I didn't, you know, and, and then I would even, you know, wash more or even after washing, clean their veranda or mop their house just to for them earn. to realize that I'm a good girl. Right, right. Yeah. I'm hardworking. Yeah. So when you ask, so what kept this hope alive? What kept you going and dreaming? It, it, it was partly, you know, there was that thing in me that, okay, I have to make it in life mm -hmm. for me to earn a place. But I also had to make it for my siblings. Yes. I felt like I had a huge responsibility for their destiny. Mm -hmm. And I had a huge responsibility to find my mother and start a life. I felt I had I had to buy land and build a house for my mom and do all those different things. Mm -hmm. And though, you know, by that time I was about, you know, I was still young, but it was, it felt like I had this heavy load yes. yeah. that I was carrying yeah. and no one else was going to carry it for me. Right. Yeah. Well, Annabelle, I know that our listeners want to hear more of your story, um, but I'm also aware of the time there and that the studio may need mm -hmm. to shut down. So I'm feeling this is a good place to stop. And what, what I'd like us mm -hmm. to do right now is to pray for those listeners who maybe they haven't found the hope, maybe they haven't, or maybe they've they had it, but they've lost it because of life's circumstances. And um, yours is an amazing story of redemption, and, and we're going to share more of it, and I'm going to share some of my story. But let's just take a moment right now and um, just pray however the Holy Spirit leads. I'll start, and then you you carry on. So, Father, I thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to share our stories. Of, uh, we haven't heard the rescue part yet for Annabelle. We haven't heard um, the middle of the story, but we know the current story and, and the transformation. But Father, right now, we, there are people listening who are in desperate situations. They may have been used and abused. And I just want to speak to you right now, those of you who are in that situation, and say there is hope. There is a God who sees you. There is a God who cares. There is a God who will rescue you. And um, so right now, I just release fresh hope to any of you that are listening. Maybe you're already, you've already met Jesus, but you're still in a situation of, of being abused and, and you don't know where to turn. Father, I'm asking that you would come to each one of them and 
that you would speak your words of truth, that you would, that they would hear your voice, that they would feel your arms around them. And maybe they don't know where the help is going to come from, but I ask that you would reassure them that you see them, that you know them, and that you have better things for them going forward. And I thank you, Lord, for Annabelle sharing her story today. I, I pray, Lord, your protection over her and over her family, that as she's being vulnerable, Lord, you will come and protect them and uh, protect their hearts. And Father, I just thank you for her. And Annabelle, I just ask you right now to, to pray however the Spirit would lead you to pray. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I just speak purpose through the pain to somebody that feels like their story is so bad. They just don't see any sign. Uh, They just don't see any way that you can use their pain for greatness. Mm. But Lord, I, I have a testimony that you know how to turn our pain into purpose. So Lord, I speak that right now in the name of Jesus. I speak fullness and completeness to anyone that is striving with acceptance. I break off the lie that you are rejected. I break off the lie that you are insufficient, that you're incomplete in the name of Jesus. And I speak the truth of God that you are loved, that you are favored that you are complete, that you are not defined by the circumstances that have happened to you, that the mistakes of other people do not define your destiny. In the name of Jesus, I speak love, personal love, that you find love for self. Oh, that you get to a place where you look at yourself in the mirror and you love your body again and you love who you are. Oh, and you love... Thank you, looking at your, your face and, and you're able to just have a new radiance in the name of Jesus. I speak a release of hearts, Lord, King of mercy, every heart that has been so broken and where there has been a lot of betrayal from people that you trusted, from close relatives, from people. So I, I just fear in, hear in my spirit that perhaps somebody that will be listening to this is feeling that, you know, um, the, the very people that were supposed to protect them are the people that hurt them and therefore they have lost all trust in anyone. And right now I speak healing in the name of Jesus Amen. and I speak that you'll be able to trust again mm-hmm. and you'll be able to connect. you find, may God bring your way amazing people that will love you genuinely, that will walk a journey with you genuinely, without expectation, without conditions, without making you feel like you have to pay for the love that they are giving you in the name of Jesus. We speak that release. May you find freedom, child of God. May you find healing, child of God, in the name of Jesus. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Annabelle. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I know that you know that it helps all of us when we hear one another's stories. It does help us. And uh, I really look forward to our next conversation. We'll pick it up when you're um, a teenager and striving to uh, improve yourself and and earn money and provide for your siblings. And um, I love the way you tell a story because we can picture you. We can picture what you're going through. And so... Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you to Trinity and uh, all the crew there um, at Era 92 that are helping with the filming in Kampala. And we'll talk again soon.